Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Never Lick the Spoon. And far from being triskaidkaphobes here at Never Lick the Spoon, that is of course the phobia of the number 13, we've embraced it and are lucky enough to have ourselves a returning guest who brings some much needed positivity. Anna Blakeney is back and as I promised last time, she's telling us all she can about the developments in the lab with Imperial College's vaccine and indeed some of the other vaccines vying to be first. With most of us now going into a winter lockdown, she has some much needed optimism about how soon we can expect to receive that hallowed jab. She also tells us how a chance fishing trip off the coast of Seattle could provide scientists with the answer to just how many antibodies someone needs to fight the virus successfully. Another piece of luck. So all of that to come and more, but enough of my spoilers. Here is my chat with Anna. I'm kind of always reminded of the of the first time we had a chat um, back in, God, was that in April, wasn't it? And I always remember you saying that all going to plan that you would expect to see the Imperial vaccine being available for the public uh, towards the end of this year, 2020, or towards the start of 2021. And so my, I guess my first question is, are things going to plan? <laughs> yes and no. So I would say things are going to plan, but probably just not as rapidly as we had hoped. So I'm still blinded to everything in the clinical trial, obviously, just because there's a conflict of interest in me seeing the data before it's all complete, just because, um, yeah, you don't want to be tempted to present things in a biased way. Um, but we did have a change to our protocol. So because this is the first time that this type of vaccine, so self-amplifying RNA, has been tested in humans, um, we went in with like what we thought was a good range of doses and then um, decided to try even more. <laughs> and so changing the protocol just is never fast because like the you know research council and all the regulatory bodies have to see it and say, okay, yes, you know, we approve of this and it's ethical and stuff like that. And so just getting it through kind of all of that bureaucracy just takes time. So yeah, sure. I, I could completely imagine. And so we're recording this on, on Tuesday, on the 27th of October, and it's kind of made the news today that researchers at Imperial have found that the antibodies kind of drop off quite significantly in those survivors of the virus. Um, and I, I guess, you know, what, what implications does that have for your vaccine then? Would it kind of go down the model of, uh, you know, a seasonal jab, for example? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's kind of two different things to consider here. So the antibodies from the natural infection might have a very different profile than the antibodies from a vaccine. I don't think that we are actually that surprised that the antibodies wane pretty quickly after the infection because we know for both SARS and MERS that the, and other coronaviruses that the antibodies typically last three to six months. So it's not very long. Um, and I think this really just gives an even greater impetus for having a vaccine because if people, you know, get infected and then they only have antibodies for three to six months, you could be looking at like two to four infections per year. And so that really isn't looking great for the, the statistics of the herd immunity. So I think it's really going to be a combination of vaccines and the herd or, and um 
So a combination of the vaccines and natural infections that create this ultimate herd immunity. Yeah. So I also remember you showing a fantastic plot at one of your seminars, and it was with to do with the animal trials. And you showed the antibody rates for, you know, a given dosage of vaccine delivered to mice. Mm -hmm. I know it's really speculative to go from the animal studies to the human studies, but could you see those different profiles and antibodies uh, between catching it naturally and surviving it versus a vaccine with animals? Yeah, so this is a really interesting and, um, yeah, very relevant idea. So the reason that we uh, did that analysis and prepared the data that way is because we don't have what's called a correlate of protection yet. So we don't know what antibody levels are required in humans to prevent infection. So in our study, the best way of just trying to assess that is by comparing the antibody levels induced by the vaccine to the antibody levels induced by a natural infection. So in patients that have recovered from COVID-19. Um, so yeah, in, in that study, um, the antibody levels in mice were about two orders of magnitude higher. So from the vaccine compared to the recovery covered patients. There's a few caveats there. Obviously, human and mice immune systems aren't the same. So we don't know that um, the results that we see in mice will be exactly predictive of what we see in humans. But just today, actually, I read a really interesting study um, about getting closer to a correlate of protection. So there is a paper that was just submitted to um, Med Archive, you know, like bioarchive those preprint servers where people submit their papers before they're actually peer reviewed but it was a really interesting study that was done actually on a fishing boat off of Seattle so they had tested everybody before the um, fishing boat went out and um, so they tested them for both antigen and antibodies and then there was an outbreak on the vessel and they could see so that and they had everybody antibody levels before the outbreak happened so then they were able to go back and look at who got infected and what their approximate antibody levels were and so that actually is kind of the first report that i've seen that gives us a better idea of what a correlative protection actually would be um, so, yeah, one of the kind of the downfalls of that is they used a certain antibody test um, based off of Abbott. And so they have their own like marking score. <laughs> and so it's a little bit difficult to compare to other antibody tests. Um, whereas so when we do the ELISAs, we have a standard curve. And so we can say the exact quantity of it's like, you know, the units are like micrograms per mil or something like that. Like it's an exact concentration of the antibodies. So it's a little bit hard to compare between different uh, antibody tests in that way. Um, but yeah, so I think we're, we're moving closer to understanding what the actual correlative protection will be, which is really, um, yeah, great to have that kind of ironed out and will also help all of these vaccine studies. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And did some of the fishermen display, you know, significantly worse symptoms than others on the boat? Yeah, so really it's it's interesting. So there were three that beforehand had a positive antibody test 
um, that were at a certain level that were protected. So even though it's a really, and there were, I, I wanna say 147 total. Um, so even though it's a really low number, there were also some that had antibody levels that were um, much lower and they weren't protected. And so it's really, really low numbers, but it just gives the first hint of here's the level of antibody that's protective versus if you're below this level, you're still at risk of getting infected. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, but, but it also, like, I think the most amazing thing is you had an idea of their antigen level at the start. Like, how? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so they did that. I think it's becoming, you know, as we get more of these public health systems in place. So anybody who is in these really close quarters with other people and maybe, you know, have a chance of getting the virus, I think that's probably just going to start to become protocol for stuff like fishing ships where you're in really close close quarters with a lot of people inside. Um, so yeah, it must have just been part of their company's testing where they tested everybody beforehand. And then scientists at University of Washington were able to then go back and look at the data and be like, oh, well, this is actually a really interesting epidemiological study here. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure how I'd feel if I was a fisherman embarking in this human Petri dish of a boat. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, I mean, the idea was to make sure that um, that nobody, I mean, the idea was to protect everybody and make sure that nobody had it beforehand, right? But obviously, you know, somebody must have been infected or it somehow got on the boat and people caught it. So, yeah, I think it's a really difficult balance of being able to work and you know, yeah, being, putting yourself at risk of being exposed to the virus. Yeah, yeah. I suppose going back to the, the idea of the vaccine and more more generally, uh, not just looking at Imperial. Um, so there, there seems to be a lot of positive talk over the last few weeks about a vaccine being ready over the coming, you know, over the coming month or two. Um, is that something that seems realistic or are we counting our chickens before they've hatched? I think there's some, yeah, there's definitely some people that are getting close. So Moderna in the U.S. I think will be the first. Their phase three is completely enrolled. I think they're kind of just waiting on data to finish that up Um, because obviously in the, you know, you have to follow everybody out for, you know, so long um, as whatever their protocol was. And so you can't really... Um, finish the trial or analyze the data before that time. But I think it's kind of just, yeah, a matter of a few weeks before that data is in. So I think they'll definitely be the first, um, which is great because, uh, yeah, that type of vaccine, which is similar to ours, which is based off of RNA, is really easy to scale up and produce. And so I think it's really promising um, just because as far as being able to get vaccines out there to a lot of people pretty quickly. Um, another one that's really close is the BioNTech and Pfizer one, um, which is also based off of RNA. So, um, yeah, it's I I think we're gonna start seeing vaccines come online here, and it's gonna be really interesting as far as when these vaccines get licensed and how effective they are and where they get distribu- distributed. Um, and then you know it's I, another thing that's really interesting to think about is. Obviously, like there will be vaccines that are available more quickly, and then it's kind of a rolling review as to how effective they are compared to other vaccines. So 
you know, maybe some of the first candidates will be, you know, pretty good vaccines, be able to give you some level of antibodies that protect a certain number of people. But if a really potent vaccine comes out in a year or so, then they'll have to go back and reassess, okay, can we still offer this, ethically offer this vaccine when a way better one exists? Um, So yeah, it'll be a really interesting time, I think, over the next year. Yeah. Absolutely. Would you take the would you take the first vaccine? Would you take a Moderna vaccine off the shelf straight away? Yeah, I definitely would. <laughs> That's good enough for me. <laughs> so Anna, turning to you, so you've joined uh, an exciting new UN initiative to increase vaccine awareness, and that's called Team Halo. So yeah, could you explain what you guys are up to? Yeah, so Team Halo is a collaboration between lots of different vaccine scientists all over the world. So we have what are called Team Halo guides in the UK, the US, Brazil, South Africa, Qatar, UAE, we're probably missing some here. Um, But the idea is to make scientists available so that people that have questions about vaccines can ask the scientists directly. And the really interesting thing about it is that we do this over TikTok, which seems a little bit silly at first, (laughs) um, but I think it's actually a really great platform for being able to just directly communicate to the general public. Um, So yeah, the, the idea is that uh, scientists, you know, answer questions and post videos about how they make vaccines and kind of cut out the media middleman. Um, so when it when it was first in discussion, the idea was really how can we r- directly reach the people that, you know, may have questions about vaccines or are skeptical of, about vaccines um, and. I think most of the time scientists go through the kind of more traditional media routes like the New York Times or the Guardian and people that are reading those articles about vaccines like don't really need to be convinced you know they're there they're reading the article they're already on board so it's really people that may have more questions about it and how do you reach them and find them so they decided that TikTok was a really good platform to be able to do that. Yeah, and I guess I guess a serious question to, you know, obviously quite a light-hearted uh, way of going about your work is you're obviously trying to target uh people who might be skeptical to vaccines, maybe not just the coronavirus vaccine but vaccines in general. And I guess my question is how potentially dangerous is a significant minority, say, of people who are anti-vaccine? Yeah, I think this is something that I've really come to yeah, realize and think about in the past few weeks, actually, which is that we generally speak about it as being pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine, like an anti-vaxxer, right? And I think it's actually much more of a gray area than that kind of black and white view of it. So... There's definitely people out that there that just are anti all vaccines or have a lot of conspiracy theories around it. And that's not really the people that I would say we're really trying to target and communicate with. It's a people that are just skeptical. And I actually don't think that's a bad thing. Like if you think about it, that's what scientists are taught to do, right? You're supposed to be critical of the data until you see the data and you can make some sort of informed decision on it. But I think the disconnect comes from the the data doesn't always get directly communicated to the public. And so there's just all these questions about how do you test vaccine? How do you make vaccine? What is actually in this? 
And so I think it's it's a much more of a gray area. And I see that just in the questions that people ask me, you know, they're just curious about how do you make this? What's in it? How do you test it? You know, what is the actual safety testing that goes into this? What are the actual side effects? And I think people, it's good to be critical. You know, that's really what scientists are doing. And so I think that's also good for the public to be doing. So I'm happy to answer those questions. Yeah, I look forward to it. And uh, yeah, we'll put uh, we'll put a link to the TikTok videos in our bio. Yeah, so I guess my last question is, as we said at the very beginning, it's been, what, six months since we had our first chat. And, you know, back then it was all new. And seeing <laughs> you back in the lab, uh, you still look really upbeat. Yeah, it's good. I mean, for us, it's still such an exciting time to be able to be doing this clinical trial and testing our vaccine in humans. Um, And I think just in general, I'm kind of feeling like I more see the light at the end of the tunnel too. I know it's it feels like quarantine has been forever and just the lockdown is exhausting for sure for everybody. I also feel that, but I feel like I'm starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel with all the data that's starting to be published on these vaccines, you know, start like getting close to finishing phase three of the clinical trials. And so I think they're going to start to be available sooner than later. And that's just a step in the right direction to being able to feel free again. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm sure that idea of the light at the end of the tunnel will be music to many, many people's ears. Anna Blakeney, thank you so much for joining us again. I'm sure we'll talk to you before we actually exit the tunnel. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me, Kieran. Always a pleasure. So some optimism there to leave you with. And many thanks again to Anna for giving over her time to speak to us on the podcast and making us feel a bit better about things. And indeed, thank you for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already, wherever you found us. And that just leaves me to say that, as always, never lick the spoon.